0: Hello and welcome. You're listening to This Is Some Scene. I am James Ippoliti, and I am also the host of the Real Demons of Pop Culture podcast and many more podcasts soon to come. This Is Some Scene was a podcast I produced back in the mid 2000s to about 2009. Season one of This Is Some Scene is going to be those lost interviews interviews with people like Tommy Wiseau, Joe Dante, Amber Benson, Crispin Glover, so many more at the dawn of podcasting. I had a group of people that had a lot of fun doing these podcasts. Now, the quality is not as great as it could be because it was at the beginning of podcasting where it was very hard. It also was recorded live. Most of the calls were live, as you will see, and so the quality is not to the standards of 2023, but they are pretty good for 2008, 2009, etc. You may hear the voices of Andrea, you may hear the voices of Eric Feasterville, also known as Chris Blake Sasser. So grab your favorite beverage, sit back and enjoy these interviews from the beginning of the podcasting universe. In Season 2, we will be introducing new interviews to continue the legacy of This Is Some Scene. (laughs)
1: <laughs> this is some scene. This is some scene. This is some scene. This is some scene. <laughs>
0: We have the Lost Joe Dante interview from October 13th, 2008. Now, I apologize for the sound. Again, this is 2008 podcasting, which the technology was not what it is today. And in this interview, I got Joe Dante onto the show. And my great friend, Chris Blake Sasser, who is a great filmmaker himself, Uh, conducted the interview just because I knew that he knows so much about Joe Dante and his films and his history that I wanted to make sure he got the chance to interview him, and it was such an amazing interview. Now, Joe Dante's on the phone, Chris is on the phone, and I'm in the studio, so therefore the audio is just, you know, sounds like a telephone call. Um, again, this is way back in 2008 when podcasting was just getting starting out. So I, this is one of my highlights of my podcasting career was to be able to get Joe Dante on my show back then. It was called This Is Some Scene and he was such a great interview, gave us like 40 minutes of conversation, um, kind of upset we never followed up on that. Uh, because at the end he's very interested in like coming back on the show, and I loved the movie The Hole that he was talking about. That was one of the movies uh, that I went and saw and loved, and never got to get him back on. I didn't try; it was my fault. Um, but what a great interview! And after that interview, it was October, and I remember I uh, you know thanked him for the interview after the show, and got him to sign this autograph gremlin photo for chris for his christmas present and he signed um oh what was it something greetings uh it was a it was him holding a gremlin and he signed it and it was kind of it was a funny thing he wrote on it let's get into the lost joe dante interview from 2008 live from gorilla delphia this is
1: some scene for monday october 13th i am your host they call me the (laughs) Bogwai.
2: no they don't Nobody taught you that. (laughs) Our uh, guest is the maker of such celebrated motion pictures, including The Hatling, Piranha, The Burbs, Inner Space Explorers, and a little picture called Gremlins. He's worked with both Roger Corman and Steven Spielberg, Barbara Steele, and Bugs Bunny. Let's welcome the one and the only Mr. Joe Dante to our little program. Hello, Joe. Yes, hi.
1: Thank you. My name's James, and uh, Chris will be conducting the interview. He's a huge fan, as we we all are, but uh, he knows so much, and and oh, I, that I think... old
2: story. <laughs> <laughs> so
1: that was that was Chris, girl. take it away.
2: All right. How you doing tonight? Hi Chris, fine. All right, it's great to have you on the show. It's great to um, be I, guess, I guess we'll start right off with uh, the uh, terrific re- website you have going on, trailers from hell. Can you tell us a little bit about the site? How it
3: uh, yeah, kind of well, I've got this. I got this website called hell dot com, and it came out of the fact that I was a trailer collector. I've been collecting thirty-five millimeter, sixteen millimeter trailers for years since I was in college, really. Right. I had this big collection, and I thought, "Geez, you know, I never, I never run these anywhere. I mean, nobody ever sees them. They're sitting on a wall somewhere." And. Uh, I also noticed that, you know, the movies that I grew up with, the movies that, uh, you know, are considered classics, are um, pretty out of touch for most of the audience. I mean, except for Turner Classic Movies and a couple of other stations, these these things really aren't, you know, in the okay. public eye anymore. And um, right. I, I thought, well, you know, this might be an interesting way to not only get these trailers out to people, but... Uh, to sort of get another generation interested in some of these pictures that they otherwise wouldn't maybe hear about. Uh, when I was growing up, everything was on television. People talked about stuff. You know, we movies sure. from the 30s and 40s and 50s, and uh, they were taught in school and all that kind of stuff. And now they're kind of you know out of Getting sight, and out of mind. Yeah. So we got basically, I got a bunch of friends of mine together, other directors and writers, and we they just were talked. all
2: keen. They were all very keen to do it help out.
3: Yeah, the idea was that we would run, uh, we would have these trailers, You pick a trailer for a picture you liked, and then while the trailer is on, they all run about, you know, three minutes or under, and, uh, you know, just do a little mini-essay, just talk about what you like about the picture, maybe where you saw it, what what it meant to you when you were a kid, what it means to you now, whatever. And um, we found out that uh, there were a lot of interesting people who had a lot of interesting things to say uh, about these pictures. And. Uh, it's been quite uh, interesting for us because we've, uh, you know, it, with no publicity and no advertising. I mean, it's a very mm-hmm. cheap site. I mean, we don't advertise it or anything. It's strictly right. word of mouth. But but we have been getting some attention on the blogs and uh, some right. attention elsewhere. And and people, are, you know, are, are are giving us a lot of hits and tuning in and
0: uh, right. get embedded yeah. in
3: other people's sites and stuff. And uh, yeah. I, I'd like to think that we're raising the you know the bar on getting people to sort of sample movies that they otherwise wouldn't be able to, you know, know about.
2: Right, yeah, that's great. I really like the site. It's a lot of fun. A lot of fun. A lot of good. In fact, it has turned me on to a couple of movies, so it's uh,
3: good. Well, doing that's the job. Really cool. And there's a little the button where if you, you know, if you like the movie, you can go to, take you to Amazon, and you can,
2: you know, pick it up. Right, that's great. What's the uh, trailer for the worst film that you guys have on there? What would be the worst film that you guys have? The worst have?
3: picture on there? Well, I they don't really come a lot worse than The Beast of Yucca Flats um, <laughs> with Fort Johnson, uh, which was shot without sound. But uh, there's uh, The Incredible Petrified World is right up there. I mean, that's it's a, a movie that consists of like 90% industrial stock footage. Uh, it, it's, uh, there's, there's, some, there's some gems on there, but we, it's funny. We started out, we thought we would only do genre pictures and horror pictures and stuff. And then right. we found that the people that we got interested had much wider ranging tastes than that. And we ended up doing a smorgasbord of everything from Spartacus to
2: Johnny yeah. and Clyde, which
3: is our 200th Tower Inferno's Academy. been on there. Yeah, it's mm-hmm.
2: great. Yeah, so yeah. the Towering, towering Inferno all kinds of stuff.
3: Yeah, no, that's so great. it's a really eclectic mix, and it's been a
1: lot of fun. And uh, Edgar Wright quotes that the black hole is that you say that's one of the worst on there as well.
3: Well, you know, Edgar is indulging in a little hyperbole. It's certainly no way that he <laughs> got to fly, you know. But Edgar is actually one of our most fun guys. I mean, he, he's he's a really funny, smart guy. And uh, his and since he grew up in England and he saw all these pictures, you know, in Europe, he has a completely different take on a lot of them than uh, some of our domestic people.
2: That's fun, yeah. So a little bit about uh, you. You originally started out wanting to be an animator, is that correct?
3: Now, I wanted to be a cartoonist, actually. Uh, uh, I was huh? a big uh, cartoon fan, and, and I went to art school thinking I would be able to be a cartoonist. And I was told at the Philadelphia College of Art that uh, cartooning wasn't an art, and I darn well better take something else. So uh-huh. and I took uh, film. You know, was, this was back in the 60s when film was not uh, the sort of sexy um, you know, subject that uh, it is today, and so we had like 30 students and, and two cameras, and the, the, the trick was to try to get a hold of those cameras for long enough to be able to make your film sure. and get it in by the deadline. And they were black and white, and they had no sound. I mean, this is this is you know the, the primitive era of student films. And when I came out to California. <laughs> I realized that uh, in Philadelphia, we had, we had been a, a little deprived, because when I saw student films that were made in California, they were in 35mm, they were in cinemascope, they were with stereophonic and they had real actors. Oh.
2: Whole nother world.
3: Yeah.
2: Yeah. So, you were lucky enough to, uh, when you first started on the business, to, you know, cut your teeth with Roger Corman. Nowadays, well, it lucky seems like, is
3: certainly the word.
2: Um, you know, nowadays, anybody can pick up a digital camera, edit on a computer, and Turn out a film. Mm-hmm. Do you feel that the plus, or is there something lacking because it's easier access to, the, to well, the, no, uh,
3: it? Well, no, it, it, it is great now that people it's more democratic that people have a chance to make a film on their own. You know, uh, Francis Coppola predicted this years ago. But uh, the, the great thing about working for Corman was that you were making pictures that uh, you knew were actually going to get shown in theaters. And um, mm-hmm. We were none of us really knew much of anything. I mean Roger hired people who were at rock bottom bargain basement prices and, and but it was justified because none of us knew anything. I mean we had all come from wherever wherever it was that we came from, and we didn't know anything and so we learned on the job and enough people he was Roger had a particularly good uh, ability to uh, pick out people who really, really wanted to make films and really would stay late and do the extra work and come in on Sunday and you know try to make their women in prison picture. A little better, you know, than the last okay. guys, women in prison picture. And and you know, when you look at the the roster of people who went through there, I mean, you see that there's a, a tremendous number of people, both in front of and behind the camera, who were um, who went on to big things. And they all started with Roger.
2: Right. But do you think? What do you think that the current state of uh, indie film is? I mean, even with all this equipment and people doing all this, do you, do you think that there's really an independent scene now, or has it been swallowed up by the? the well,
3: figures? it's it's. It's great that everybody has access. The problem is getting your film shown. And, uh, you know, as we all know, the indie companies have been failing at a rapid pace, and the ones that haven't have been bought up by the big studios. So what you end up doing is you're making a studio picture for no money. And uh, the studio people are, you know, they're they're very hands-on. They have their opinions of what sells and what doesn't. They do testing like they do with the big studios and market research. And that's not indie. I mean, an indie movie is one man, one film. You know, you go out and you make a film, and it's about a an interesting offbeat subject and you make it as best you can for no money and that's where the David Gordon Greens of the world, you know, come from. Right. But it's very yeah, I mean, difficult to uh you know, to to make a studio
2: uh indie. Yeah, I mean if Robert De Niro's in your independent film, it's not really an independent film, is it?
3: Well, probably it's certainly not in the classic
2: sense, no. Yeah. Okay. Um, wanted to ask you about your collaboration with Jerry Goldsmith. What can you tell me what it was like Collaborating with what was it? Nine pictures? It was eleven, actually. Well, eleven, eleven, 11 projects. I mean, probably
3: nine features. Yeah. But um, well, I was, you know, the lucky. One of the luckiest things that ever happened to me. I mean, a number of lucky things happened to me. I've been a very lucky guy. I mean, I, there was Foreman, mm-hmm. there was Spielberg, and there was Jerry Goldsmith. And mm-hmm. um, you know, I've worked with very few geniuses in my in my career, and, and Jerry was one of them. Rob Bottin was another. Um, right. But every single picture that I did That uh, Jerry did the score for Which was virtually every feature After the Twilight Zone movie um, mm-hmm. Was uh, 100% better when the, movie, when the music was put on <laughs> We had we to have a saying On the floor when the was, scene wasn't working We'd say, oh that's okay, Jerry will save it <laughs>
1: and,
3: You know, it wasn't always true But it was frequently true mm-hmm. uh, He was He was just the best I was so lucky to uh, have my dabblings in film um, scored by Jerry. Uh, it, it just it, it ennobled them in a way that uh, mm. it's hard to explain, because I, I'm, not a, I'm not a musical person. I mean, I, I, I like music and I, I know what I want, but I'm not conversant, I don't read music, I don't play. Um, but we got along famously, and um, we developed a system where I could use a, a certain piece of temp music and Jerry would know what that meant. He'd know what kind of music wow. I wanted. Perfect. And and the, the funny part was that I kept using The Trouble with Harry by Bernard Herrmann yeah. because it's a quirky movie, and I've made a lot of quirky movies. And so I, yeah. I would always end up putting in a piece of The Trouble with Harry somewhere, and Jerry would you know slap his
2: forehead and go, Oh,
3: no, not Bernie again.
2: Jeez. <laughs> That's um, great. Do you have a favorite uh, score that he did for you?
3: Well, you know, they, they, the movies all got so much better when he put his music on them that I don't know that I do, but I, I do know that uh, the, the quality of the score is not necessarily connected with the quality of the movie. Um, mm-hmm. And that the, uh, certainly the score for uh, Explorers was one of the better. And, it, and this was back in his experimental, somewhat uh, uh, electronic phase. And, uh, and he just he just did such a fabulous job. He kept coming to me and he kept saying, "Are you sure?" When he would listen to the temp scores, "Are you sure you want it to be this sad?" And I said, "Yeah, no, this is the, this is what I'm looking for." And he just did this phenomenal score. And unfortunately, the movie was released without being finished, so it's not really quite the movie I had in mind. But the yeah,
2: uh, score. I, you said that uh, it's your uh, one of your personal favorites still, even though you don't feel it's finished.
3: Well, it was um, a rough cut.
2: I mean, the, the studio
3: changed hands during the making of the picture, and they decided they wanted to release it several months early, and they just basically said, stop where you are and finish the movie. And so we never... We, the editing process is where you really discover your movie, and, and we mm. didn't get to do a lot of discovery. We just sort of did a version, and it was sort of like, well, maybe that's the right version, and maybe it's not, but it didn't matter. That was the one that had to come out.
2: Wow. That would be a frustrating experience.
3: But also, yeah, the score the score for Small Soldiers is awfully good. I mean, yeah, the main title for uh, Small
2: Soldiers, I think, one of the best things that Jerry ever wrote for me. Now, um, one of my favorite films that you've done, and I believe it's become an honest cult film, would have to be The Burbs.
3: Well, cult is certainly the word because when The Burbs came out, it got the worst reviews since Mein Kampf. And <laughs> in fact, I remember the New York Times review because it was not—you don't often get a review as succinct as this. Uh, it was, I think it was Bosley Crowder, and he said that this movie is as empty as a film can be without actually creating a vacuum.
2: Oh my and, God!
3: And uh, it was it was roundly derided. It made money, but it, it was roundly derided. And the funny thing about it is that in the over the years, it has become such a fan favorite. That it's I not it's got like websites devoted to it. It's got people quote the dialogue. Mm-hmm. Uh, they they watch it. They have verbs parties. <laughs> they <laughs> shout the dialogue out. I mean, it's
2: really odd. <laughs> yeah, I can tell you, we love it. I mean, I qu- quote Br- Br- Bruce Dern constantly.
3: Well, it's uh, right. yeah. it was a lot of fun to make,
2: but it was unfortunately
3: just uh, you know considered to be a real piece of tripe when it came out.
2: Wow, I never understood that. I, I enjoyed it. I, I actually, I heard that you filmed a scene with uh, Kevin McCarthy for The Burbs. It was kind of the picture. I, he I played did. I Hank's think we, boss we, or something.
3: We shot the movie in sequence, and there was a writer's strike going on. Uh-huh. And, and and because of that, I said, look, let's do a lot of improvs but if we shoot it in sequence, we can actually develop the characters as we go, as opposed to shooting it out of sequence where your improvs suddenly sometimes don't make sense. And so we, we, the whole group of the cast really were, were creating the characters. And Tom Hanks kept saying, well, you know, what, what, what is the secret that, that this guy is trying to save from, uh, trying to keep from his wife? Why is he taking this vacation? Well, how about it? Because he's been fired, and he doesn't want to tell his wife. And so during the dream sequence in the movie, there was a scene where his, his boss, Kevin McCarthy, shows up uh, and in, – in, you know, uh, lets the audience know that he's been fired, and it was improvised. Like the, the like, then that morning we said, "Gee, we, we need somebody to play the boss, so let, let's call Kevin." So we <laughs> called Kevin, and he was in town, and he came over, and he brought three ties with him. So, "Which tie do you want? You want this tie?" Or the other one? <laughs> And he came in, he did his little scene, you know, and it eventually got cut out of the picture. But it was it was that kind of movie. I mean, it was really a kind of a fly fly by night kind of you know just off
2: the cuff movie. I wish it made the d v d that sounds so much well, funny. I wish
3: they still had the footage i mean we had we shot three endings for that picture, and you know and only like we one showed one up managed idea. to find one of them, but yeah. then the other ones just ended up you know going disappear so is the one in the
2: picture the one you prefer
3: well the the problem was that the script used to end for people who haven't seen the movie, it's about a neighborhood that is they're all suspicious of this one group of creepy neighbors who've moved in. And uh, in, in the original script, the, the idea was that the Tom Hanks character gets into the ambulance at the end with the crazy Henry Gibson doctor, and it turns out that indeed they really are crazy and bad, and they drive away, and Tom Hanks is, is killed. And as soon as they hired Tom Hanks, they said, well, you can't kill Tom Hanks. We've got to have an ending. We've got to explain <laughs> All the things that these evil Klopek people are doing in their basement. And the whole movie had been built around suspicion, like they're digging and there's strange lights coming out. And and we didn't know what they were, right? And we didn't want to tell anybody because we figured, well, the more people don't know and have to guess, then the more horrible they'll think it is.
2: But (laughs) then we
3: had to finally, at the end, they said, well, now you have to explain what they've been doing. And none of the explanations that we ever came up with really made sense based on all the (laughs) stuff that they've been doing. So we shot a couple of different versions of it, and one of them was in one of them they opened up the trunk of the car and there was cheerleaders inside. Then there was another version where we opened up the trunk of the car and the two garbage men, Dick Miller and Bob Picardo, were inside. And when we shot all these things. We shot all these things, and and then we ended up cutting them all out and you know doing a sort of a hybrid version. And um, it it isn't really very satisfying, but the movie is so silly it doesn't make any difference.
2: Uh, I love it. I, I it never fails to make me laugh.
3: No, it's a good time.
2: It's a good time. And I enjoy the heck out of Interspace as well. Very, very funny movie, I think just as underrated. Well, that was uh, a lot remember, of fun to make. I remember when I saw it the first day it opened, I thought it was going to be bigger than Gremlins. Did uh, Warner Brothers drop the ball in the marketing there, or what?
3: Well, Warner Brothers was—they—they uh, they weren't that crazy about the movie. While I was making the movie, they kept saying, "You know, this isn't really very funny. Don't you think we should maybe replace Marty Short with somebody who's really good-looking?" You know, that kind of stuff. And wow. uh, but we finished the movie and we had a preview, and uh, to their amazement, the preview went fabulously. I mean, it was just great. The audience loved it, and they said, "Well, this is great. Now we don't even have to sell it. It's so good." And so they did this ad, this big ad campaign with a giant thumb.
2: And, see, the, ter-
3: the poster was terrible. A huge fingernail with this little tiny dot on it, which if you looked really hard, you could see was like this submersible ship. And I said, guys, this doesn't, have any, this doesn't look funny to me. I mean, it's like <laughs> some hardware thing with a plum in it. It's like you don't yeah. even use the cast. You're not even using pictures of the cast. No, 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 we know what we're doing. And, of course, <laughs> it, you know, it came out, and nobody but the crickets were chirping. And people went to see it. I mean, it, 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 I was in theaters where people were really having a great time. But yeah, ultimately, it just, didn't, it just didn't deliver. And they actually reissued it with a, another lousy poster, and that didn't work either. Um, but over the years, on video, it was discovered because it was one of the first VHSs that was actually letterboxed. And, and,
2: uh, yeah, I was going to say, how did that come about? I noticed that wasn't well, I just, the first uh, one I ever. Just,
3: saw... Spielberg was very good about screen ratios, and, and, and the, and right. the Amblin people, and then later the DreamWorks people, uh, were very particular about post-production. And, and when you see a, uh, a DVD that comes from these guys, it, it, believe me, it has been carefully vetted and really gone back to the original negative and had all the work done. I mean, they they really know how to take care of their... their but the,
2: uh, wasn't the DVD transfer the first one that had the, the look right for it? The, I think you see in the commentary that some of the lab scenes finally had the right... Well,
1: blue.
3: the problem was we shot the lab scenes with this weird filter, and when uh, when you put it on video it turned orange and they were all blue and so the only way to get them correct on the video was to go back to the original prints because if you went to the original negative they just all turned orange and it's one of those things where you have to keep reminding people you know every generation when they keep making it no no this this part has to be done from film you know but eventually you know we'll all die off and no one will remember (laughs) that all will be be orange (laughs) i I, I found that to be true when i used to make trailers for corman and we used to go to the mgm labs and uh, wait for our trailers to appear, and we would watch them timing movies. And a lot of them were old movies that had day-for-night sequences in them. And they would, they would time them in, in, without sound. And the guys would just watch the movies, and they would time it the way they think it should look. And day-for-night stuff is shot in the daytime, and it's got a filter, and it makes it look like nighttime. So it's uh-huh. easy to just take the filter out and just print it for day. And I, they, were, they were doing a picture called Terror on a Train with Glenn Ford, and it was a shootout in a railroad yard. And the whole thing was predicated on the fact that it was so dark that people couldn't see each other, and they printed it up per day.
2: And I said, "Guys, I've seen this
3: movie. This is this is. They can't all be shooting at each other like this in the daylight. You've got to fix it, you know." And I realized, you know, the guys, the people who made the movie were dead, and oh. if I hadn't been there, just some guy, you know, it would have been gone out that way. And so you, you still see that on, on occasion, where day for night movies are printed up in the daytime.
2: Wow. Well, um, let me ask you a little bit about your experience with the Looney Tunes back in action. Something tells me that had to be well, a very challenging... About that. <laughs> I, don't, I don't like I to that. I don't
3: like to go through that.
2: <laughs> I mean, was it, uh, you know, just technically. I imagine that the uh, standpoint of the uh, studio must have had you know, very specific ideas concerning what they wanted out of it. And,
0: well, no,
3: they didn't. They, 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 the specific ideas were that the marketing department wanted a Bugs Bunny movie because they felt that the mm. the cartoon characters were... Fading from the public view. Now, what they didn't tell me was that one of the reasons that it was fading from the public view was they had taken all the cartoons off television, and right. they hadn't been on for quite a while. And so the kids didn't really know; uh, they weren't that familiar with Bugs Bunny or the Warner Brothers characters. And when the movie came out, um, it, they're, they're, it came out to an audience of kids who really went Bugs Bunny. I kind of remember him, but who was he? Mm. And it was, you know, nobody showed up. <laughs> And so all of this zorous an effort that we went through, and it was a lot, because there was a lot of contention on the movie and a lot of unpleasantness. Um, it didn't all it matter. It didn't matter what we had done. We could have put anything on the screen, and they still wouldn't have shown up.
2: Yeah. You think you you uh, were true to Bugs Bunny? Do you think you
3: uh... well? We tried to be. I mean, that was the reason I did it. I mean, I, I knew Chuck Jones very well, and and he really right. wasn't a fan of Space Jam at all. And this yeah, was sort of a follow-up to Space Jam, and and mm-hmm. I I did it because I was afraid somebody else would do it worse.
2: <laughs>
3: That's a good reason. Well, um, ultimately it wasn't. <laughs> ultimately, for a year and a half of my life, it it really wasn't a good enough reason. No,
2: no. I you know it wasn't Space Jam. How about that?
3: <laughs> no, no, I think we 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 managed to avoid that problem. Uh, but you know the, the the beginning, the middle, and the end of the movie that I started to make are not in this movie. <laughs> <laughs> so wow. there's, there's, uh, there were a lot of changes along the way
2: Wow,
3: that's really something But we did get a really good uh, Voice guy named Joe Alasky Who did uh, Bugs mm-hmm. and Daffy And he did, I, I, particularly with Daffy I think he did like an Oscar worthy job I mean it was really uh, A remarkable performance Which, you know, I, I doesn't really get much credit But um, right. I, I was just very impressed With how
2: well he was able To channel Mel Blanc Well that's a good thing
1: um,
2: How about the uh, your favorite Dick Miller performance in one of your own films?
3: Uh, well, my favorite Dick Miller performances aren't in my own films, but, uh, <laughs> but uh, I thought he was very good in Gremlins 2. Gremlins 2? He had played, this, he played the part in Gremlins 1 and, and where he was sort of xenophobic kind of guy who mm-hmm. hates foreign anything. And we, you know, we ran over him with a snowplow, but he was so much fun that it was sort of like, well, gosh, we, we really can't make this sequel without bringing him back. And so we brought him back in, out of a hospital, and, uh, you know, he's, now he's very paranoid in his life, his you know, <laughs> acting like, well, maybe he didn't really see it at all, and maybe he didn't see anything, maybe he's crazy. <laughs> and and, he, and he, toward the, his character arc is that he learns that he's not crazy, which is great. But, but Dick is he's such a good actor, and he so seldom had, you know, really good parts, lead parts, or, you know, strong mm-hmm. parts. And he would be on for a couple of scenes, and then he'd be gone. And the, the, this was an opportunity to give him, like, a, you know, a pretty good sporting
2: part. Yeah, it's a great role, fun, fun, fun movie too. I, yeah. I think I uh, am one of the uh, people that tend to like the sequel more than the original. Oh, I,
3: I prefer the sequel because you know the original was uh, I, they use the word work for hire where you know they hire you to do somebody else's idea, which you know I uh, was happy to do because I liked the idea. But then when they finally came to me and said, you know, we've been working on trying to make a sequel for years and we can't figure out how to do it, so if you do it, we'll let you do whatever you want. And then I thought, well, the way to do this is to try to make sure there'll never be a Gremlins 3 by making, <laughs> making fun of the first picture and all right. the things that were, all the silly rules and things that we you know, had to put in to make it work and, um, and just build on all the, all the stuff in the first movie and try to top it. And you know, we had more money and more time, and the technology had changed over the past five years. And we were able to do a lot more with the puppets that we could never have done in the first movie. Uh, right. And make them talk, and you know, and it was it was really a lot of fun, and they left me completely alone. I mean, they they, they, they then, weren't uh, that crazy Tony about it when it was done, but they still they did they did leave me alone.
2: Having Tony Randall do the Brain Gremlin stroke a genius.
3: Tony was, uh, and we did Tony in New York, and uh, he was that was that whole afternoon that I spent doing <laughs> Tony was one of it was one of the highlights. I mean, you know, you, one of the great perks of. Making movies is that you get to work with people that you grew up watching and uh, spend time with them, and the the day I spent with Tony was just it was just a He was such a funny guy, and he yeah. made up a
2: lot of his dialogue. I mean, he's it's funny he's, stuff. He's really funny, funny stuff. How is it that they haven't uh, managed to drag the Gremlins into the uh, digital remake world, which I think well, would I be think they will. But
3: you know the the. the
2: the thing that's holding them back is that the
3: first two movies were defined by the technology. I mean, the, yeah.
2: the things that the Gremlins
3: did in the first two movies were things that they could do. And in the first movie, we discovered that there were many things in the script that we just couldn't shoot because we didn't have the technology. So we figured out, okay, let's do the things that we can do, and let's, you know, let's build on those. And 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 then for the second film, it was the same thing. But it was all very limited. I mean, there was only so many things you could do now. With I PCM, think that's why it works.
2: I mean, I don't think it'll work if they're digital. Well,
3: if that's, it gave form and substance to the first movies. That, the problem now is that because they can do anything, they can turn into... And we, and we started to get into that in the second movie, and we had one that turned into electricity, and you know, we, we really started to push the envelope, but it still was within the bounds of what was possible. But now, if you're not going to do a puppet film, um, right. I think what you have to do is you have to do a CGI film, and if you do a CGI film, I think you should not do number three. You should go back and do number one over again and try to change the whole idea of what they do and who they are, and just throw away the first picture and just just do it. It's because it's a brand new beast now. If you yeah, happen. now, there is a guy. There's a guy in Belgium who made a mashup that's on um, on uh, it's on the internet. And he yeah, I think we, that. we saw that the one was.
2: With Batman, Batman. And, and, and a Yeah, he
3: took the scene from Gremlins 2 where the film breaks, and he did his own version, as mm-hmm. if it was a DVD that broke, and he gets the Gremlins going into other movies, which is which is what we did. But, but he's now doing, he's getting going into contemporary movies. They go into Batman, and they go into Goonies, and he, and he it's he did this in his garage basically with yeah. over a period of years by himself with his own uh, puppets that he built and painted. And manipulated on green screens and then put into these scenes. And I tell you, I mean, the work is so astounding. It looks
2: like well, it's a it very Hollywood impressive studio. Yeah, yeah, it looks wonderful. Stuff. Yeah, very interesting as you can do the stuff in your garage now. <laughs> well, it's just, it's just,
3: it is amazing.
2: It's just amazing what you can do now. It is. Can I ask you about Batman? Sure. I what know about that the. America? Well, I know that you worked on it a long time before... Uh... Well, I didn't really work on it. I was offered it. And
3: after Gremlins, I was like the fair-haired boy at Warner Bros for about, mm-hmm. I don't know, three weeks. And
2: uh, <laughs> three three, weeks. one of the
3: projects that was going on there was uh, Ivan Reitman had just decided that he didn't want to direct Batman, and so they were looking for another director. And... You know, on on the one hand, I was flattered that they would ask me, and the script was completely different than the one that Tim did. It's it,
2: this was so it wasn't the Sam Hamm
3: script. No, no, it was not the Sam Hamm. It was uh, by Tom Mankiewicz, who had written some James Bond
2: movies. Ah. Uh, mm-hmm.
3: And it was uh, spoofy. It was James. It was, it was a little more James Bondy, but and it, it was fine. There's nothing wrong with it. But but what what I found was I said, I said sure I'm, I'll 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 do it. That sounds exciting, and then I. I I started to realize that I didn't really believe in Batman. I believed in the Joker. I really yeah. liked the Joker. I thought the Joker was great. I even had John Lithgow was going to do the Joker. Really? Um, but I realized that I didn't buy Batman. And this was, this was back when Batman still had Robin. And they were living together uh-huh. in the house all by themselves with the butler. <laughs> right? And, you know, I just didn't believe it. I didn't believe it. And, and I said, I can't. I can't make this movie if I don't believe in Batman. I mean, they got to. Batman's the hero. They got to get somebody who believes in Batman. So I, I, I woke up one morning and I said, I can't do this. I go. I called them up and told them, and they thought I had lost my mind. I mean, they were ready to have me committed, which in retrospect was probably an accurate reaction. But uh, I just, I, I thought, I, this should be done by somebody who believes in. I can't just make a movie where I'm only want to be with the Joker, you know, and all the Batman stuff is like. A,
2: a, an afterthought. Well, um, apparently that's what the new movie's like. I haven't seen it, but that's what everybody tells me. <laughs>
3: uh, the what? The new, uh, the new Dark Knight. Yeah.
2: No. Yeah, I heard it's a good
3: movie. It's it's the best Batman movie. It yeah.
2: really is. It's but I best hear best it's the Joker's movie. movie.
3: Well, it's the Joker's movie. But I think if Heath Ledger was still with us, they wouldn't say that. I mean, he is great. Uh, but yeah. but the fact that he died sort of <clears> you know focused the attention yeah. a little bit on him. Uh, but it is it is a terrific performance, and he is the best Joker ever.
2: Yeah, well, with apologies to Cesar Romero. <laughs> <laughs> I praise I praise indeed. Um what about your uh, time on the mummy? I know that everybody from Clyde Barton to Romero. Yeah yeah, 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 yeah. You know, I would the love, love to read the John Sale script. It just Well, I'd what, love to have you heard about, you read about it. read it too and
3: I'd love to have made it. Uh it was a uh, modern version of the mummy set in 1996 or whatever. I don't know what year it was. Um and it was, uh, and, and Steven Spielberg read it. He said, "You know, Joe, this is a this is a perfect picture for you to do. This is this kind of picture you should be doing. I'm going to help you get it made." And so he was, you know, very buddy buddy with, um, um, what's his name? Like, Sein- Seinberg? Ted Yeah. And yeah. so he sent the picture to Sid, and uh, Sid read it, and then we had a meeting where we visited the set of Casper, uh, which was shooting on the lot. And Stephen figured it was going to be, like, oh, great, we'll get, we'll get Sid to say yes, and the movie will happen. So Stephen says to Sid, so what did you, you think of the script? And Sid says, well, frankly, I didn't care for it. And huh. Stephen is like, oh, shit, you know, I mean, the one guy in the world, he's not going to cry. Yeah, the one he's guy. guy. <laughs> the guy who gave him his start. So right. he said, well, what didn't you like about it? And Sid said, well, it, it, it's not a period movie. It should be a period movie like the first one. <laughs>
2: Of course, the first one wasn't a period movie. At no, it, was it wasn't made. a
3: period movie, although it is now, but it wasn't really right. was made. It was right. 1933, and that was pretty much the end of my Batman movie. However, they didn't give up on the idea of doing it. They had, I think, Mick Garrison, George Romero, and a whole bunch of people came in and did versions and mm-hmm. takes on what they thought they could do with it. And well, had you heard talked Christopher Lee?
2: Well because at
3: the end, he was in my version, yeah. Uh and, and, and I had, had a part been? for him and he was ready to do it and you know. Wow. Um but and it would have been a good movie, believe me. It was a good seen. movie. It was it was it was funny and it was scary and it was it was good. But um uh. it just didn't it's like one of those many pictures like Termite Terrorist, which is another movie I
2: Yeah, that was the one about right. Doug Jones, right?
3: Yeah, it was about Chuck Jones in his early years at Warner Brothers, um, you know, animating. And uh, it was a very funny script by Charlie Haas. And the problem was that Warner Brothers didn't want to, at that time, they were very solicitous about their cartoon characters, and they didn't want to uh, put them in a movie that was not about them. That It was about something else, and they were just props. And so uh, they said, we don't want to do that, we want to do Space Jam. So they did Space Jam instead, and... And you know, Termite Terrace is still sitting in a vault somewhere at Warner Brothers. And
2: and I learned my lesson. I,
3: I, I learned, don't ever develop a script that has characters that you don't own in it. <laughs> right. <laughs> because it was, yeah. like I could take it to Universal and say, well, let's do it
2: about Woody Woodpecker. <laughs> so, you know, it,
1: it, doesn't,
2: it doesn't work that way. Yeah. And what about the? Uh... I think you were attached for two seconds to Dinosaurs Attack, which was. No, I wasn't the, uh... attached
3: to it for two seconds. It was my project. I mean, we we hawked it all over town. And we had a pretty funny script by Dana Olson, who wrote the burbs, and um, right. we just couldn't get it off the ground at all. And it, we had Will Vinton who was going to do the effects, and oh, all wow. these designs. We had it, it was it was a great project, and I think we I think it was at Warner's, and they just decided they didn't want to do it. And I guess that's still at Warner's. Wow. I'm you know, most, if you look at most much. directors' resumes, you know, sometimes you see these long gaps in them, and you right. think, oh, well, I guess he must have been in rehab or something. That's <laughs> not true. It's, it's, there, are, there are so many more projects that people work on that don't get made than the yeah. ones that do, that anybody's resume that you look at is, at is at least twice as long with projects that they sometimes worked on for years and sure. never got made. Um, and I mean, I worked on a picture called The Phantom, which... I went down to Australia for, uh, and they canceled it like four weeks before shooting, and then they made it a year later with a whole different group of people, and they didn't realize that the script that we were going to do was was tongue in cheek, and so they they did theirs straight, and it didn't work.
2: <laughs> oh, it's insane. Well, you still use that? Gotta... <laughs> it's uh you still got a producer credit on that
3: movie, though, right? Yes, because I'm an idiot. Because I worked on that movie for so long and so hard that when they came to me and they said, you know, we've got a lot of producers on this movie. Why don't you take some money and go away? We'll take your name off. And I got all <laughs>
2: umbridged, and I
3: said, what do you mean I worked as hard on this movie as Bob Evans did? I want my name on it. And then, duh, you know, it turns out to be a disaster, and there's my name yeah.
2: on it. But it <laughs> the ad campaign was Slam Evil, wasn't it? Slam Evil. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so now I understand You're not keen on remakes But let's no, say I'm, just I, for fun
3: Remakes are okay I've done remakes
2: A studio guy called you That, and that says, was a remake Well that was the, that the Twilight a lot of Zone fun. movie
3: That was a remake
2: But you didn't want to do The Twilight Zone as a remake You wanted to do another No remake. it wasn't that I didn't
3: want to do a remake I just thought they should, that they know the story Should be remakes I thought, I, right. I, I thought Gosh you know guys There's so many great stories That mm-hmm. haven't been done And they're all Involved twist endings And if you do the ones That have been on TV That everybody knows Then they're already Going to yeah. know the ending so why did, I you have a,
2: did you have an alternate story in mind for that?
3: I had, a, I had several alternate stories, but ultimately, when when they decided that they wanted me to do the one that I did, I said, "Well, let me at least go back to the book and do it so that it's so unrecognizable that maybe people won't realize what they're watching until you know at least halfway through, so that at least there's some suspense, because some uh, some of the mm. other stories were like literally the same stories that were done on television." And they were right. very, you know, even people who hadn't seen them sort of somehow had them in their heads. And yeah, they were in the thought it was wasn't a good idea.
2: Yeah. But so George f- Miller's episode
3: is is you know pretty fabulous, and and to see it shot was like really thrilling. I mean, they had this gigantic plane body and this guy in a suit and this wind and the whole thing on a soundstage. stage. Yeah. I mean, it was really
2: really exciting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a good segment. Um, actually, yours and George Miller's are the only two I like. Well, that was want, what uh, yeah. that was
3: what how it turned out actually when the movie came out. Well, oh, these two that was great for George and I because these look the two the two famous guys didn't do episodes as good as these two guys we never heard of.
2: You know, so it was um, yeah. it was a good career move. Yeah, I liked them. Um, so you wouldn't be opposed to doing a Creature of the Black Lagoon remake or something like that. No,
3: I was actually attached to the Creature of the Black Lagoon once when uh, Jack Arnold was supposed to remake it at Universal. Really? I was really? The backup yeah. director because Jack had had lost a leg. And, oh wow. Yeah. Um, when uh, Universal, we, who actually treated him very well in his last days, uh, we, were planning on doing the movie, um, you know, we, uh, I was, I was there for all of it. But then ultimately they, they didn't do it, and then they kept announcing it every ten years. They're going to do another creature on the Black Lagoon, and now they got so much money against it, you know, of all these people who've done scripts and stuff. And, yeah. And
2: well, or was it the I ever make it? Was it the Nigel Neal script when yeah, you Yeah, it was the involved? Nigel Neal script. All right. And was it true that that had, like, a, a whole core of, like, cryptozoologists? It had the, two monsters. Uh, it had the creature and another
3: monster. I don't remember uh, it all that well. Um, yeah. But Jack and Nigel were not – they weren't really copacetic. It was not uh, the best uh, collaboration.
2: Were you – is it true you were going to do Halloween 3 for? I was do Halloween least, 3
3: for uh, – with John Carpenter. Uh, and I had a, in fact, I had a meeting with John um, – at some restaurant at Universal, and I suggested Nigel Neal. I said, you know, you should really get Nigel Neal for this thing. Right. He's, he's, he's and and John knew Nigel and or Tom as he was called, and um and that uh, that eventually worked out, not ultimately to <laughs> Nigel Neal's satisfaction, but
2: yeah, apparently um, he ended but up But then
3: not I, I got the Twilight Zone job, and so I I, I left that project and did the Twilight Zone.
2: Okay. So next is uh, something called Bad Out of Hell.
3: No, actually next is that that may or may not happen that one, but uh the, the next one is a project called The Hole. Which okay. is uh a three D
2: horror film. Three D? hmm Wow. Well wow. that sounds fun. Yeah. Tell us anything about it, any drop us anything. Uh, it's a uh
3: it's a, a a it's a sort of a pseudo family horror film where this family uh is a mom and a and two kids, one eighteen, one ten, move from the big city to some rural um, house in, in this strange out-of-the-way place, and the kids are kind of bummed about it, and we don't exactly know why they've had to move, but there's some mysterious reason why they've had to move, and uh, when they get to the house, they go down in the basement and they find this, um, this door in the, in the floor. It's got locks on it, and uh, it seems kind of odd that anybody... It's underneath a bunch of stuff that they have to move, and then they see this thing, and it turns out that when they finally open it, that it's this this black hole that goes seemingly who knows where, and they they drop flashlights down and they disappear. They take a Cartman doll and they
1: <laughs>
3: put it down there and it sort of goes away and they, and and they can't quite figure out where it goes. And anyway, as you might imagine, there's something down there. Yeah, I love and, it. <laughs> and
2: that's pretty much it.
3: <laughs> well, that sounds like
2: it could be fun. When do you when do you do it? When when do you
3: I'm shoot? supposed to shoot that uh, next month.
2: Wow, so is it cast?
3: It's cast. Uh, Chris Casalio and uh, Haley Bennett, who is in the Haunting of Sarah Morgan or something that's opening.
2: Yeah, something that's coming out. I've heard and that. Terry
3: Polo. It's it's a it's a very small cast. It's a, it's a very um, uh, it doesn't even have a, it doesn't have a lot of locations, but it's um, it's got a lot of
2: strange things in it. So what are the challenges of shooting this in 3D? What's that? Well,
3: I've already done a 3D film. I did a, a ride film called The Haunted Lighthouse for uh, SeaWorld, and uh, well, that was a different kind of 3D because that was 70 millimeter, but the, okay. this is digital now, so it's, it's, it's different. But, well, the challenges are, you know, the, the audiences go to 3D movies expecting that, you know, something's going to get thrown at them every five seconds, and right. that's not really, that's not what we're going to do here. Uh, in, the, in, the old, in the old 3D um, period in the, in the, in the 50s, Uh, just toward the end, when it started to peter out, more and more interesting directors started to get involved with 3-D, and and Hitchcock did Dial-In for Murder, which is a 3-D movie that was seen in 3-D, maybe in one theater in America. Uh, And it doesn't have a lot of stuff sticking out at you, but what it does have is it's got a tremendously clever use of the space, of of the stage, such as it were, because it was a stage play at one time. And Uh uh, it it really uses the the depth emotionally. And I'm sort of trying to use it a little more like that, you know, to try to use it a little more psychologically. Than to just that sounds very things promising.
2: Things people. But, yeah. you know, we'll see. Sounds very promising. looking forward to that. Alright. Um, anything else you want to uh,
3: ask Plugged? James? <laughs> plug? No, not really. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Well, I just want to say uh, I'm a huge fan, and I really enjoyed the interview, and I can't wait to see... What is it called? The Hole? The Hole.
3: Well, it's called The Hole, the hole now. It may not be called The Hole when it comes out. That's a working title. Okay. like 27 okay. other movies with Hole in the title. What is it? It's an independent company called Bold Films. It'll probably huh. have a distributor, but I don't know who it's going to be. Okay, great.
1: Right. I'd love to have you back on when, that, when that's coming out, when it's uh, getting released. It. That would That'd be, be great, wonderful. Man. And... And if you're ever out on the East Coast, there's this uh, a Monster Mania, is a convention out here. It's like the best monster horror convention out on the East Coast, and it's in Cherry Hill, New Jersey. And I know you're familiar oh, with Jersey. Yeah, right,
3: right, near where I used to live. So
1: just because right. uh, we'd love to meet you in person, and everybody on the East Coast loves you here. And uh, you no, know, I'd so, love to do
3: that. Love I, I don't, so, I don't do them very often. I just did a Horror Hound in Minneapolis, which was, which was fun. Um, yeah, so mon- it's monster. I-
1: it's uh, Monster Mania in Cherry Hill, New Jersey, and I think that's where we interviewed uh, Zach Gallegan. We talked about Gremlins there, and uh, Did this you and Kevin know.
2: McCarthy go there? I think he's been there a couple times. Hasn't he? he has been there, yeah,
1: yeah. Yes, yeah. it's yeah. it's really a really great time, and uh, if you're ever out there, we'd love to come and meet in person. It'd be wonderful, well, and great. thank I, thank I, you so I, much. I... Okay, thanks. And um and trailers from hell, we love it. And actually, the mo- the one movie I want to bring up from that that we watched that you you had put on was was it the thing with two heads? Yes. Yeah. Yes. <laughs>
2: Thank really you so much for that. Yes.
1: <laughs> Thank you so much for that, because you're right about that. You're bringing these things out. I never knew about some of these films, and we, we went and got that, and uh, what a That's great time. It, huh? Yeah, it's a lot of it fun. It was. <laughs> now you yeah, know yeah, we've, you got to go. We've done a lot
3: of pictures. We, we've we we've brought people together on a lot of pictures that they wouldn't have seen otherwise.
1: All right. Well, thanks okay, cool. again. I so appreciate you calling in. Thanks a lot. Thank a you. Pleasure. Good
2: Thank night. You
1: again. Bye. Bye. Good night.
2: Are we uh, still on the air? Yes, we are. Wow. Well, that was a lot of great stories there, huh? Yeah. A lot of great, good stuff. What a great guy.
1: I think he, did uh, you get you got all your questions, I think.
2: Just about. Yeah, I think I covered yeah. everything, actually. Yeah. Yeah. So, although I didn't get to go into my, uh, you know, since Bad of the Hell isn't happening right now, I didn't get, get to go on my, how I hoped it was, a 70s disaster picture with George Kennedy and Leslie Nielsen and
1: uh, Linda
2: Blair. And, honestly, uh, I'm not not. I don't want
1: to. I don't want to. I don't want to throw something negative out there about *Bad Out of the Hook because I don't know it. But I'm honestly more psyched about this whole movie because it sounds more like something that would, you know, vampires on a plane is one thing, and and I'm kind of worried about that. I, that's what I'm saying.
2: Right. Right. This well, sounds
1: like. First of all, I'd love to see a Joe Dante 3D horror film. I I think that would be fun.
2: Yeah, well, I think uh, just about everything he does is fun, so I can't...
1: Uh, yeah, I can't, can't complain. I can't complain. Even you know. the stuff, you know, that, that, like I said, the burbs, I couldn't believe when he said that, that the New York Times said that. But, you know, it's one of those things. Ten years, how many years later is it since that came out?
2: Well, it's happened to a lot of great movies. I mean, it happened to Carpenters, this thing. It the time. Look at Grindhouse. Everybody ignored Grindhouse. So.
1: Yeah.
0: It
2: doesn't surprise me, you know? So, but, you know, it's... Well, great.
1: It's great, and I'd love to have him back uh, when the hole is being released. And he said he'd be willing yeah, to do it. So
2: keep our eyes out for it. Good.
1: Yes. Summer. And now I think we're done. So uh, okay. that's all we have. To say. Good show, man. Good, good interview.
2: Thank you. I had a great time.
1: You feel better now?
2: Oh, I feel fantastic now.
1: All right. You can give me a call all if right. you want. All, all right, man. Good night.
2: Ahead.